0: We're looking today to the 16th chapter of Matthew, being a little more selective here as we move forward in Matthew, but I still intend to try to give you the, all of the significant points of movement in the text as we go through this gospel. Matthew 16, we come to a very epic moment in the gospel. This is even more apparent in Mark, which parallels this chapter in Mark 8, and what happens, in what I'm going to read now in Mark, is, is very obviously the turning point of that gospel. It's as if everything just makes a hard right turn, and if you miss that turn, you wouldn't be traveling the way Jesus is going any longer. Maybe that's a little more hidden in Matthew, but it's nevertheless a, a time for a climax, time for a, something that's been building for a long while. I'm going to read just verses 13 through 18 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And this is God's holy word. Suppose I told you that I wanted to introduce you all to a friend of mine. But as I thought about this individual, I thought maybe I'd better prepare you a little bit because this person's quite unusual. And so, before introducing the person to you, I would warn you about some of his unusual traits. One of those traits is that this person once held a skilled job, but now, for quite a long period of time, he has not worked, in, at least for money, and he actually eats and subsists on the charity of others. Another thing I should tell you before you meet this person is he constantly makes extravagant claims for himself. Another issue about him that makes him unusual is he never asks anyone for advice. And even more so, he never explains his unpredictable behavior. And he's never been heard even once to ever apologize For anything he's ever done. Are you eager to meet this person? What advanced impression do you have? You think, my goodness, this friend of yours sounds like some kind of an egomaniac. Maybe you already dislike him. But maybe you've also guessed that the person I'm talking about is Jesus Christ. Of whom all those things are true. In C.S. Lewis's brilliant children's story, series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia, I think many of you know that several children enter into a magic land where they have many adventures and they meet the ruler of this land who is a splendid lion called Aslan. Now, without any doubt whatsoever, Lewis intended Aslan the lion to represent Christ. That's very obvious. He He actually dies in the place of a disobedient child and is raised back to life. At one point in the series of stories, the children leave Narnia, and then after not so long a time in their worldly calendar, they come back again, but they realize that hundreds of years have passed by in Narnia time. They haven't seen Aslan for hundreds of years, and when he does appear before them, the the youngest little girl, Lucy, looks at Aslan in wonderment, and, and he looks immense, and she says, oh, Aslan, you've grown so much bigger than the last time we saw you. But the great lion speaks to the children and says, no, he's the same size. But his explanation is, the more people really get to know me, the bigger I look to them. That's exactly the way it is with Jesus Christ. The person of Christ, the eternal Son of God, is such a being that he fills minds and hearts and imaginations and the entire horizons of life and of the culture of our world. Colossians 2.9 says, Jesus who walked on our earth, as a matter of fact, is all the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. How could he not be immense if we truly knew him for what he was? We learned that the very definition of a Christian in this world is anyone who can say about Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every word of that confession is significant. Jesus, a man who walked in real history, Christ, the anointed one sent for a purpose by God, is, not was, not will be, is Lord, ruler, everything that God is in his sovereignty over us. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the Christian's confession. And in that confession, we learn that Christianity is Christ, and Christ is Christianity. And so it's absolutely imperative that we have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Not was, is. Now, we've progressed through Matthew studying it, and we've seen a lot of back-and-forth interaction with the enemies of Christ. I've actually, in recent chapters here left out, some of the interactions with the Pharisees and the, just the difficult arguments with them over aspects of the law, but there's also been interaction with the disciples who are only in sketchy ways but growing ways, understanding who Christ is and what He's all about. His closest disciples were working this out. You know, they began to follow Him because they knew there was something remarkable. In, the, in John's Gospel, Nathanael says, You are the Son of God right at the beginning. But in Matthew, I need to point out to you, nobody has said that yet. And it's significant that no one has said that. Matthew is showing us the working out of all this. They had their ideas about him, but some of those ideas were thrown off track as he didn't do things or say things the way they thought he should. And now, for the last number of weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus has been moving the disciples toward a private time, away from the crowds, heading north. Last time we saw him up there near Tyre and Sidon in what is southern Jordan today. Once again, today, he's in an area of the north, a city called Caesarea Philippi, not the same Caesarea that's on the coast, the Roman port. This is an inland town. Named by the Tetrarch Philip to glorify himself, Caesarea Philippi. Exactly 10 years ago in November, a number of us from this church were there, and I remember this place very well. It's a beautiful spot. The Jordan River has its source just above there. It's a fast-running, clear stream, not the muddy brown river that you see farther south. Mount Hermon, the great mountain on a clear day, is beautifully visible in that northern part of the country. It is the northernmost extent of the promised land, but still a place that's largely a Gentile residence. And as a matter of fact, it was a place where the Greeks and the Canaanites and then the Romans all managed to build different shrines to their god. The Greek god Pan had a great shrine there. And so Jesus is here amid a pagan idol factory, you might say, A place where images of false gods have been known, not just for a little time, but for centuries. And it was in that time as he ended this private retreat. You could say this was the the last class of the semester in the private instruction of the disciples, alone with Jesus, before they moved back into the public arena again, as you will see happening uh, soon here in these coming chapters that he wanted them to face a critical truth about him. And so it is Simon Peter, we're not surprised, that he steps forward as the spokesman, and he speaks on behalf of at least ten of his fellows. We would wonder whether he spoke for Judas here, but he certainly speaks for the majority of them, and he speaks for every true Christian yet unborn in the very important statement that he makes. For here we have a confession of faith that is so vital, it is like a line drawn in the sand of history. And once anyone steps across this line to affirm the same truth that Peter did that day with all the sincerity of their being, everything changes. Everything changes as a result of taking ownership of this one supreme confession. First of all, look at Matthew 16, 13, and 14 to consider views of Jesus held by the world in general. He asked his men a question, not because he didn't have information available to him, but of course he was testing them. He wanted to see what they would say. He already knew the many things he had been called Some said he's a demon. Some even said he's Beelzebub, Satan himself. But he said to the disciples, well, who do people, what do you hear? Who are people saying that I am? And you might remember that not that many chapters ago here, John the Baptist was martyred. And it was after that event that they went off heading towards this private time. It was that meteoric reputation of John that, was fresh in people's minds, and they were still saying, well, look, John is gone. We we expected so much from him. He was amazing. But look at Jesus. Maybe he's John, reincarnated. And I guess they thought they were paying him a great compliment. Others said, no, he's Elijah. These people were better Bible scholars and they knew that the last prophet Malachi had spoken and near the very end of the Last page of the Old Testament, Malachi 4 5, ends with the pledge that before the day of God's Christ, Elijah would come to be the forerunner. And later on, of course, Jesus is going to blend Elijah with John the Baptist in their minds. Well, then some others say Jeremiah. It's a puzzle to some why Jeremiah, but the main thought is that Jeremiah was a prophet of judgment and a prophet of God bringing to an end the false faith of Israel, his covenant nation who had rejected him, and that very much was the message they'd been hearing from Jesus. So they told him all these as complementary ideas that people said Jesus was. Just last week, I finished reading a brand new biography of General Robert E. Lee, one of the great men of American history. You might know about Robert E. Lee that what sort of frustrates people about him is that his reputation is so great. Yes, he represented a cause that had an immoral heart to it, the cause of slavery, but as a man, he had a reputation in his personal dealings, in his integrity with other people that, and, of course, in his genius as a general that made him a truly great man. And there are people who write these uh, biographies, and this one is, is like it, who, which purports to publish many, many hundreds of letters recently uncovered. Believe it or not, all this time past, they are still finding troves of letters of people like this. And, and so this author takes these many letters and tries to get inside the man and say, well, here's the, here, let's strip away the myth, here's the real man. Well, there are countless similar attempts made to dissect Jesus and to establish the fact that he really is something different, maybe less, maybe more, although always less when the critics get done, than what the New Testament suggests he is. You probably don't follow these things, but since the 1880s, there have been three different major movements in American or actually European as well, but especially in America, in New Testament scholarship, three different movements that have taken up the name, the quest for the historical Jesus. You know, that sounds kind of like people going off on a venture to find something that they, they think is lost. Well, that's what these scholars think. They, they have a presupposition, and, and it is this, that somewhere beneath all the verbiage, beneath what they would call myths, and miracles, and embellished stories, somewhere inside the New Testament there, buried in there, is a is a simple peasant man called Jesus. And we want to try to get in there to find out who he is. And to do that, we've got to figure out what doesn't really belong to him, what has been uh, foisted on him, so to speak, or or that somebody has exaggerated or made a claim that isn't the real claim. And these scholars have had three different waves of doing this. The the third wave began sometime in the 1980s and is pretty much dying out now, I think. And, you know, what what it ends up with is the Jesus that they find looks very much like a 20th or 21st century Protestant liberal because they've used their presuppositions and their critical methods— And when they're done stripping everything away that supposedly doesn't belong to Jesus, you can't find Jesus. He's been thrown out like the proverbial baby with the bathwater. There's nothing left. We find today in the climate of our country the way in which someone runs for president. The key question for that individual if they desire to be elected and to get the maximum number of votes the key question today is for them to ask the pollsters and ask their, their keen political advisors, What is it that people want me to be that will make them vote for me? I will become that. Or at least I will appear to become that until I get the vote. And so public image makers and pollsters tell the candidate who she, who she, Uh-oh. or he needs to be in the state of Iowa or the state of New Hampshire or the state of Pennsylvania in order to get elected. And the interesting thing is that the politician, if they aren't really careful, ends up becoming all those different people. And I really wonder sometimes when they look in the mirror in the morning, do they know who it is looking back at them? You see, in 2007, there would be those who say, well, Jesus is such a multifaceted individual. He can be anything that people want him to be. He he is many things. He's a grand moral teacher for sure. He's a friend of the poor and the downtrodden. He's a compassionate healer. He's a leader of revolutionary ideas. He's a martyr to a noble cause and on and on. Which do you want him to be? Which aspect do you want to exalt? But you see, we must not join those who merely say Jesus can be anyone you want him to be. We must get past human conjectures to meet Jesus as he is revealed in the precise presentation of the word of God. There are very specific meanings to the way that he is presented. And if those meanings are not respected, then there is no picture of Jesus left for us. Now, I want you to notice how he speaks about himself here. It's a familiar thing. Maybe you're, you're so used to it, you don't even think about it. When he asked the question of the, of the men in verse 14, or I'm sorry, verse 13, and said, who do people say the Son of Man is? He didn't say, who do people say I am? That's first person speaking. He spoke in the third person. Who do people say the Son of Man is? You say, well, I know that's the way Jesus talks. I've heard that before. Uh, he just did that. Um, I wonder what that means. Well, it means something. And in fact, in his question, the answer is, is, in a manner of speaking, set up already. It's implied. For the term son of man is a very specific Old Testament term. You could look for it if you wanted the, the root of its meaning. There are a number of places to look, but... A key root place is in Daniel 17, verses 13 and 14. I'm sorry, I think that's Daniel 7. There is no Daniel 17. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what he says there. In my vision, writes Daniel, I saw one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven And he approached the Ancient of Days. That's a person. Who do you think would be called the Ancient of Days? And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, you see... Jesus was asking a question, who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? And it would have helped a lot if they knew who the Son of Man was, what that meant. Because if they knew what that meant, the answer would already be close on their tongues. By calling himself Son of Man, Jesus deliberately claimed to be one who had a unique position and a unique power in relation to the Most High God. He claimed to be a figure who in the Old Testament is a figure of divine glory, and he positioned himself closer to God than any sane man would ever say if it were not true. Now, secondly, we pass from the question that was asked and the human answers that were given to it to the real heart of this drama that comes in verses 15 to 17. We must not be content with speculating and say, I think Jesus is this. Oh, what I like about Jesus is this. Oh, Jesus, he's so great because of this. None of that is enough. If we do that, we're just giving the human answers that the disciples brought. We must prize in the second place the view of Jesus that is revealed from heaven and no other. Now, Jesus spoke to his disciples here. He wasn't speaking to this. This wasn't a one-on-one interview with Peter. They were all there. When he said, who do you say I am? It's plural. He's speaking to all of them. And in a sense, he wanted them all to answer, but it's convenient to have a spokesman, and Peter was always willing to be that, you know. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter gave this wonderful answer that's so important you are the Christ the son of the living god if i were to shout those words to you over and over i could not sufficiently emphasize the climax that they make here do you understand this is the first time in matthew's gospel when a disciple unambiguously told jesus you are Messiah. You are God's anointed. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. Now, the disciples had wondered about this. They had debated it among themselves. They'd talked it over. They had swung back and forth from one idea to another, but now they come with a conclusion, the culmination of all their living closely with him. Imagine, they've been with him now about two and a half years, we would we'd try to add it up exactly. It's around that amount of time, 30 months or so. They spent closely in his presence, ate with him, slept in the same place with him, walked with him, heard nearly everything he had to say of a public nature. This is the culmination. This, you want to say, is the final exam. Some of you who may have been certified in a certain profession, passed a bar exam or a medical exam or ordination or, or gotten a doctoral degree where you had to give an oral defense. You know how important those questions were that you were called to answer. You knew they could determine your whole future. Well, this is the oral defense of Peter's doctorate, if you will. It's the final exam exam. And Peter not only answers correctly, he hits a grand slam home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to win the game. His confession remains the epitome statement of all of Christianity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is that which Romans 10 says must be confessed. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now you say, why are those words so important? There are a lot of things I could go into, but I want to just keep you right on center with them today. And it's to take you to the Greek text. And if you study the Greek language, this is a fairly elementary sentence here. There's no ambiguity about translating it. You know that when you go from one language to another, word order is a little different. People say, I want the literal, I want the most literal Bible. Well, if you had the most literal Bible, it would be very awkward English because you can't always just go one-to-one from Greek to English or Hebrew to English or whatever. But here it is probably very useful for us to hear the exact literal statement of this in the original language. It says this, You are the Christ the Son of the God, the living one. This is a very emphatic sentence. Jesus is not a son. He is the Son. Peter used what is called the definite article, the word, little word the, four times in this little sentence. The Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. I think that emphatic statement is stated the way it is so that we can't possibly miss how unique is this person that Peter is singling out here. He's saying, there, there's a word we never use, Jesus is a non nonpareil, no one like him, absolutely incomparable, one of a kind, this singular God who is creator and author of life has only one son, and you are he. You are the anointed Christ. Peter's meaning is crystal clear. The uniqueness assigned to Jesus cannot be mistaken, as some critics want to say, oh, well, you know, this isn't really divinity. Uh, Peter was just saying Jesus is a son of God. I'm a son of God too in that sense. He's a son of God given an important. No. The text doesn't allow that. The text is emphatic. The Christ, the son of the God, the living one. It's the same doctrine of Christ being taught in a place like Hebrews 3, verse 3, which says the son of God is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Bible is quite deliberate in the way things are done and where they're done. Caesarea Philippi, I believe that if had they looked or had they walked a few paces or not any kind of distance, they could have seen the temples of various idols and images of gods who were not God. And in that place, this statement was made. A theologian, B.B. Warfield, wrote this about the life of Jesus. He said, His is not the portrait of a merely human life. Instead, it is the portrayal of a human episode in a divine life. For in the person of Jesus, God was tabernacling among us for a while. Another Reformed scholar, Gerhardus Voss by name, wrote about this confession of Peter, and he said this, being the son of the living God implies that in and through Jesus, God is showing himself as the God who imparts life. Jesus is God's life bearer. It is he who sponsors new birth and resurrection from the dead. Now, when we think for a minute, well, how is it that we come to this epic climax and Peter finally knows this, I would remind you about Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, a text we dealt with quite a few weeks ago, a long time ago actually. And there in that chapter 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father and those, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, I as son, have the ability to reveal God the Father, he was saying there. They didn't understand that then. Well, that applies here, except it's the reverse. It's the Father revealing the Son now. Why does Peter know this? Is it just that after two and a half years, it finally soaked in his maybe semi-dense skull? Or was he brilliant? Was he a, a wonderful student who saw things that nobody else could see? Was he clever? The text doesn't say that. In verse 17, Jesus actually pointed out why he knew this. He put a blessing on Peter. He said, you're blessed, Peter. Thank you for saying this. May God bless you for stating it. But you know this not because it was revealed to you by men, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Only God reveals God. And there were still things the disciples didn't know. And as a matter of fact, next week, Lord willing, we're going to go to the next very big episode of something they didn't know, the cross. You know, they came to the right identity of who he is, but they didn't have the right idea yet of what he was there to do. But you had to know who he was before you could know what he was going to do. And the grand view of Jesus Christ that you so desperately need to know is the view that the Father reveals. He is the Christ, the Son of the God, the living God. Now, quickly, I want to close with a third point here that only scratches the surface of a much debated and difficult area in verse 18 but will be enough, I think, for us to see the essential meaning that we need in relation to what we've just said. Because verse 18 adds to this by bringing out the supreme confession of Jesus on which the church stands firm forever. I tell you, you are Peter, Jesus said, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, of course, Peter was being made the first pope here, right? That's what the church of Rome claims. Peter, you're so smart. I need someone as smart as you to be the head man and make all the decisions for the church from now on. Isn't that what this says? It all revolves, you see, around the meaning of the two little words, this rock There was a play on words here. Peter's name meant a little stone. But the play on words is so misunderstood all the time. What sense would it make for Jesus to say, Peter, you are a little tiny stone, but on you, because you're so great and so smart, I'm going to found my whole church and it will stand on you as the foundation for all time. It just can't mean that. And it doesn't mean that. The better meaning of Matthew 16, 18 is controlled by the context. If you want to interpret Scripture, pay attention to the context. The understanding of verse 18 is built entirely on verse 16. Jesus has just praised Peter for making an accurate confession that spoke rightly about the divine lordship of Christ. It was that confession. That was the rock. You are, Peter, a little stone, unstable, sinful, weak, liable to blurt out anything that comes to your mind. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But on the basis of what you have just said, this supreme confession of who I am, I will build my church and there will be a rock under it. And the world and heaven and hell will never be able To destroy it. Peter's not the foundation stone. What he confessed is not just the foundation, but the front door and the walls and the roof and the steeple of God's living church now and forevermore. And by the way, that's not a Protestant interpretation that the Protestant reformers came up with, in case you think that. There were a number of of early church fathers that saw this text correctly, that it wasn't Peter the person. Christostom, Gregory of Nyassa, Origen, Eusebius, John of Damascus. Many early fathers understood this text correctly until it was ravishingly, wrongly interpreted for centuries after. Writing in 1 Peter 2, Peter never says he was the rock on which the church is built. Look at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8, written by this disciple in mature years. He said there that Jesus Christ is the foundation and cornerstone, that all who trust in him are living stones built on the bedrock of their belonging to Christ, not on Peter. You see, 12 disciples finally learned there was only one correct view of Jesus. He was the God-man in one person. John, the disciple, later wrote in his gospel and called him the one and only And it was obvious that his miraculous control over nature wasn't a magic trick. His control over disease wasn't a conjurer's skill. It was the power of God who gave life in the first place, moving in Christ. He commanded oceans and seas because he made them. And so the bottom line is, has God revealed to you the truth of this text and a 1 Corinthians three eleven that no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. Once you know that, He looms larger and larger and larger and larger until people ask you one day, "Why are you a Christian?" I hope your answer is, "Jesus Christ is so immense. I cannot do away with Him. I cannot look away from Him. He will not go away. He is all of reality." That's why I'm a Christian, because as Lewis said it, the more you know him, the bigger he looks. There was a man who was no theologian. He was a general, known for military greatness. Among his journals and papers after his death, this piece was found. This man wrote, I know men, and Jesus Christ is no mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires or the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His grand spirit awes me. About him there is a profound originality. Napoleon Bonaparte was the author of those words. Who do you say that he was? The answer's here. You must confess this answer. Not to confess it, not to trust in it, not to live it is to perish. To recognize and trust and confess him is to live. Because he's the son of the God who lives. Amen. Amen. Father, the greatness of your Son can never be exaggerated in our midst. May we worship him, trust him, follow him with confidence, comfort, and hope. Because he is all that he has confessed to be. Amen.